We're not going to take Trump's remarks from outside of a courthouse live because a lot of the things he says aren't true and, and potentially dangerous. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, January 24th. Today, I'm joined by Dylan Byers to talk about an important conversation happening inside CNN as the 2024 election gets underway. What to do about Donald Trump? There are disagreements about how to cover Trump at the highest levels of the network, now being steered by a CEO, Mark Thompson, who wants to tone down the five alarm fire coverage of the Jeff Zucker era. But as Dylan explains, that task might be harder than it seems. And later, Bill Cohan joins Ben to break down the rumors surrounding whether the private equity giant Apollo might make its own offer for national amusements, the Redstone family company that controls Paramount Global. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to the Powers That Be. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers, who is once again dominating the CNN beat. Uh, my <laughs> condolences to uh, people at CNN that don't want leaks to be coming out of uh, the network because it's already happening. It has been happening. It will continue to happen as long as Dylan Byers is reporting on that story. The current version of the story, I should remind listeners, is that CNN has a relatively new CEO, Mark Thompson, formerly of the New York Times and the BBC. He put out a clarion call memo last week to employees at CNN, vowing to usher in a digital revolution at the network to basically reduce the primacy of linear television at the network as the centerpiece of their business, as audience behaviors shift and change. Uh, good for him. John Kelly and I talked about this on Media Monday on Monday, but Dylan broke the story of that CNN memo, uh, but he also picked up something else that's very interesting beyond the business side of this CNN story, the editorial side. And there is a percolating question at CNN in the post-Jeff Zucker era, which is, as we head into an election year, 2024, what to do about Donald Trump? During the Zucker years, Trump was basically treated as an aberration, uh, as a target. <laughs> uh, they were openly critical uh, of the president and look, still are, and, and rightly so in certain ways. But it seems like Mark Thompson wants to turn the volume down on just the sort of you know hair on fire anti-Trumpism that really ruled the network for five or six years. And this sort of boiled over, it sounds like, Dylan, on a morning editorial call just a few days ago. Can you tell listeners what happened? 
I can. Uh, first of all, let me say I, I, I got a text from a dear dear friend of the pod who said, I love you, but please no more CNN. Sorry, friend. <laughs> so my, my, my apologies, friend. Uh, it is the gift that keeps on giving. And look, what I should say, just to make this preamble a little bit longer, for all the drama of the end of the Jeff Zucker era and certainly the drama of the Chris Licht era, which we chronicled, the Mark Thompson era promises to be a lot less dramatic, but for my money, it is a lot more, it is a much more exciting story because of the sort of Herculean effort that he is undertaking in trying to transform this 44-year-old linear beast into a more digitally nimble business. And and the question of whether or not he can do that, I think, is a very profound one. That is really a question for every media institution out there that hasn't quite figured this out the way, at least, that the New York Times has. But all of that said, he still has to deal with the business of running a 24-7 news network that does have questions like, what do you do with a problem like Donald Trump? And how do you cover that? And how do you adequately cover that? And as you noted, this was a very big deal during the Zucker tenure. Chris Licht came in sort of like beating his chest about how the posture, the editorial posture was going to change. And Mark Thompson, as I understand it, is sort of mostly just not interested in sort of spending too much time on that debate. He doesn't think that there needs to be a whole lot of sort of navel gazing and hand wringing over what is our posture? How do we cover this? It's like, no, these are current events. These, you know, these are these are public figures, and you cover them. They they are inherently newsworthy. But I think there's a lot of lingering trauma at at CNN among the veterans. And this was given voice by Jim Murphy, a longtime producer there, who basically, you know, sort of took issue with the fact that CNN has returned to taking Trump's remarks live. And after years and years of saying things like, we're not going to air, you know, I think Jake Tapper sort of said it most succinctly when he's like, we're not going to take Trump's remarks from outside of a courthouse live because a lot of the things he says aren't true and and potentially dangerous. So I think there are a lot of people there who are wondering, like, why are we going back to doing this? And should we, should we be exhibiting greater discretion in terms of how we cover Trump? I think a lot of people are interested in that debate. I think certainly there are a lot of like Neiman journalism and pointer type folks who sort of Jay Rosen types who want to have that debate. I don't really, for my money, have an opinion on what CNN should or shouldn't do. But from where Mark Thompson is sitting, I find it interesting because he is not, (laughs) you know, you would think it's reinventing CNN and the business model would be the hardest aspect of this business, and in, indeed it is. But along the way, there are a lot of other challenges, which are much more sort of pressing, I think, in the minds of CNN journalists who still care about these sort of these sort of editorial debates and what it says about the sort of integrity of the network. And it's going to be interesting to see what two things: one, over the course of 2024, what kind of leader is Mark Thompson in that regard. What kind of editorial leader is he as opposed to just a business leader? And then two, part of being able to bring all of these TV creatures over to the new digital side, part of succeeding is going to require bringing them on board with him, right? Inspiring confidence, inspire, you know, as you know, it doesn't have to be Zucker level fealty. 
but he certainly has to feel like he he has the room on his side. And I think these sort of editorial debates could play a role in that. I mean, it's interesting. Look, I mean, both of us have been on these morning editorial calls at CNN. You know, a lot of people are on mute and listening. Theoretically, anyone <laughs> network can chime in. I mean, uh, <laughs> and argue yeah. about these any, <laughs> these issues. Or, it's it's interesting. Or, or some people outside of CNN. It turns out that's true. It's it's interesting <laughs> that. Jim chose to speak up in front of the network and plant a flag on this, uh, you know, and, and Virginia yeah, Mosley, who's also been newly elevated, was sort of trying to referee and told everyone to keep these debates in house. Uh, again, that clearly didn't happen in this case. But I also like want to ask about uh, Oliver Darcy, who writes the Reliable Sources newsletter and has really taken over that role in full since Brian Stelter let left the network. And you know, like Brian, uh, I think Oliver is a pretty strong critic of networks and media organizations that allow Trump to speak unfiltered uh, in his mind, airing lies and disinformation and hate, et cetera. And Oliver wrote a few days ago in the Reliable Sources email this. It does seem clear, however, that Thompson, Mark Thompson, believes CNN should take Donald Trump live despite the MAGA leader's propensity to lie and mislead at a voracious pace. CNN was the only network Wednesday that cut into Trump's post-court remarks, airing the GOP frontrunner's attack on Judge Lewis Kaplan as a nasty man and a radical Trump hater, assail E. Jean Carroll, as well as complain about supposed election interference. That was followed by fact-checking from Jake Tapper and Eli Honig, the latter of whom stressed that Kaplan operates without partisan bent. And so it seems clear that Oliver, and I think he's, he's channeling other people at the network too, thinks CNN is making a mistake by not cutting off <laughs> Trump's mic more often uh, now yeah. that we're in the Mark Thompson era. Do you think that's that's a common sentiment, like what Oliver is writing and what Jim Murphy said? I mean, from your piece, it sounds like a lot of folks at CNN agree with the Jim Murphy perspective on this. Yeah, I, I, I do think it's reflective of the way that a lot of people, I wish there were a better term than rank and file, because I think, I think it reflects the feelings of people at various levels in the organization, certainly, uh, again, among those sort of veterans who have lived through the various iterations of CNN's editorial posture. And, you know, I, I mean, just to sort of sympathize with Mark here for a minute, I don't think that the fate of democracy is necessarily going to shift one way or the other, versus, you know, based off of whether 500 to 600,000 people happen to catch Trump's remarks live on CNN without the necessary context that they will get, you know, 30 to 60 seconds later uh, when, when they do go back to the studio. And so, again, I sort of understand why this is not really a debate that he wants to have. But yes, this is a room full of journalists. This is a room full of journalists who have a very high sense of what they do and what their sort of calling and mission in life is. And they see their you know, the integrity of the network is is their own integrity. And, and I think that these are things that do sort of, they do like to talk about and debate and think about and that do matter to them. And, you know, I, I, I think there are probably quite a few people too who think that, uh, you know, sympathize with Mark when he says, like, look, if, if we were to not take Trump live, if we were to treat him differently, we would be playing into his hands. We would be playing into the idea that mainstream establishment media has a bias against him. We would be playing in to that narrative. Mm. 
we would get at least give him, you know, just sort of give him more fodder, give him something to talk about. And, you know, again, I think I think what's so interesting about the Trump debate and how CNN covers Trump going back for the last 10 years is that there's this weird sort of notion that somehow if you just didn't take him live, that somehow you could hurt his candidacy or you could sort of somehow persuade his supporter. I, I, I don't understand exactly what the, the sense is of what would happen if you didn't take his remarks live other than sort of playing into his hand. And I think that a news organization's role is to just sort of cover the news and contextualize the news. But I think you can do those things well while taking the remarks live. And so this is sort of a debate that, yes, I think it is widespread inside CNN. I also think it's one that, um, among many other things, Mark Thompson can probably help them move past. Yeah, it's interesting to watch their coverage of Trump's victory speech in Iowa after the caucuses and CNN let Trump speak uh, in the first part of the speech. He was, you know, thanking supporters and putting on a gracious tone about Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. But once he started to go into the red meat of his speech, CNN cut away, which, you know, again, I think would probably fall under the Jim Murphy, Oliver Darcy umbrella of how they would like these speeches to be covered to not let his claims air unfiltered. Um, one more thing, Dylan, before you go, Puck this week uh, launched a, a new partnership with Echelon Insights, the polling firm. And I, I wrote about our first exclusive poll on Monday, which is basically about how closely likely voters are following Trump, Biden, the campaign, how they're getting their news. Everyone go check it out and sign up for the best and the brightest if you didn't get it on Monday. But there was an interesting tidbit in the poll about all the different news networks out there and which networks people are turning to. And and local news continues to be the number one uh, news source in the country, broadcast news and, and newspapers, print or digital after that. Cable news is still you know only watched by a plurality or a small minority of Americans. But I was interested to see CNN's number here. 32% uh, of Americans said they watch, read, or, or, or listen to CNN. Uh, sometimes for current affairs and political news. But what was interesting to me in particular was that number among independent voters. 37% of independents said they're turning to CNN, which was, I think, I mean, I don't, there's not a lot of like apples to apples uh, data to compare this to, but that seems like a pretty good notch under Mark Thompson's belt or a good talking point at least, because that's what it was, that, that was a common talking point when I worked there back in the day which is that, you know, the left watches MSNBC, the right watches Fox, but independents, undecideds, moderates, they tune into CNN. And so, you know, it seems like that's a good number. That's more independents than are watching Fox News, for example, and more independents watching CNN than any of these other cable networks. I'm just curious what you make of that number. I think that's a good number. I, I think that, you know, independents are probably engaging with, a, you know, a lot of news sources well beyond... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strictly defined cable news. And I think that in the sort of, again, the the digital landscape where where everyone is sort of playing on the same platforms by and large, I think they will have their work cut out for them in terms of competing with those other news organizations. I mean, I think fundamentally CNN in some ways doesn't believe that it really competes with MSNBC and Fox, right? It believes that Fox has, you know, gone gone well into the sort of like fever swamps of, of right-wing 
con, you know, sort of conspiracy or conspiracy adjacent um, <laughs> opinion. And then MSNBC has really become like a, a platform for Democrats and for the left. And they think that they do something different. Now, that, that doesn't stop them from playing and, you know, sort of like sending out press releases every time they can like spin a relative win on those two competitors. But this is sort of what CNN is offering is something that should do better with independence, right? Because it is it should ostensibly be nonpartisan or as nonpartisan as you can be in these times. And it should be delivering the actual news and far more news than than opinion. And, you know, so in that regard, I, you know, those numbers don't don't necessarily surprise me. And I think that if if Mark Thompson is successful in all of this, those numbers will continue to go up. All right, Dylan, thanks so much for your insight. All right, man. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about the private equity ambitions of Apollo. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here once again with friend of the show, Bill Cohan. Hey, Bill. Hey, Ben. Great to be here as always. All right, so I wanted to have you back on because, surprise, surprise, there is now word of another potential buyer kicking the tires on National Amusements, which, of course, is the the Redstone family parent company that controls Paramount Global. Bill, you had predicted months ago, I think, that Apollo Global Management, this is the, the big private equity player, would likely want to take a look at the Redstone assets, particularly CBS and some of the other television channels. They've been in that business for a while. So, First of all, I'm curious why you always had Apollo on your on your M&A bingo card for Paramount. And then second, what's potentially in this for them? So, uh, first of all, we, we you know, I know how sensitive uh, all these guys are about all of this kind of stuff. So uh, we can no longer refer to these firms, Ben, as private equity firms. Um, because <laughs> no, that's right. Th- there's so much more than that and so much more important than that. They're now alternative asset management firms. Uh, and of course, with Apollo, uh, you know, they've got probably $600 billion under management, of which, you know, $450 billion is private credit as opposed to private uh, equity. 
So, um, but one of the businesses, uh, well, a couple of things that, that Apollo, you know, Apollo's got quite a kiretsu at this point. And, um, you know, they own, they bought uh, Yahoo from Verizon and rehabilitated it. And that's probably going to go public soon with a big win for them. They also own a stake in uh, Legendary Pictures which is the Hollywood studio that uh, actually, um, uh, in full disclosure, is uh, bought and developing one of my books into a a series. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but that was the idea. Uh, They also own uh, a network of television stations, uh, local television stations that they bought when they bought uh, television stations from Cox Communications, and uh, uh, they bought uh, a, a bunch of television stations that were in the Northwest from a company called Northwest uh, Communications, I think. Um, so they are actually the seventh largest um, uh, owner of local television stations, uh, Ben. And so uh, they've also tried to get even bigger in the local television uh, station uh, industry, uh, lost out on a few deals that other people had won. Um, so I think, you know, I, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head of, of TV stations that, you know, Paramount, uh, global, uh, owns, but, you know, their affiliate, you know, CBS affiliated, uh, local television stations, there's probably, you know, a dozen or more that they own. So that would be something that would be very, uh, interesting to Apollo. Um, as of course would, I think, you know, if they think vertically, uh, you know, owning CBS would of course. Uh, be interesting for them because uh, for all the reasons that it might be interesting to anybody as long as they don't have to uh, pay too much for it. So um, I think, you know, the combination of the the, the Paramount Studio, CBS, and the uh, dozen or so or more uh, local TV stations that Paramount owns uh, all would be uh, interesting to Apollo. And I think even beyond that, Ben is they love nothing more than a complicated dicey situation uh, where uh, a restructuring or a reorganization or a reorienting of the company is needed, and uh, you know it's it's uh, you know still a bit of a mystery as to what Sherry Redstone's impetus is to try to sell nai or paramount right now and there's some feeling out there in the market that she's actually in more of a distressed situation than she's led us to believe and of course if the d word is flashing if there is in fact distressed situation looming then that's apollo's specialty so if they could somehow get nai out of some sort of distressed or restructuring type situation then then that's obviously right up their alley you know, what they won't do, Ben, uh, what they will absolutely not do is uh, pay a premium for uh, Sherry's, uh, you know, uh, equity stake, uh, economic stake in Paramount. Uh, and they are not, you know, they don't they don't want what they don't want. So, you know, I don't think they really want uh, BET. I don't think they want the cable channels, uh, you know, Comedy Central or Nickelodeon. You know, they don't want Paramount Plus and it's $2 billion of losses. So, if, you know, if they can get what they want uh, at a discount, uh, then, they're, then they'll certainly be uh, a buyer. They're not going to 
buy Paramount Global for $24 billion debt and equity. They're, you know, they're not going to pay two-plus billion for Sherry's, you know, $900 million stake in Paramount. Uh, but did they uh, uh, sign the NDA? Are they, quote-unquote, kicking the tires? Yes, uh, but they're, they're not... They're not a par buyer here, uh, Ben. They're a buyer, uh, you know, at a discount or if there's a rescue financing situation uh, that presents itself there, they'd be interested in that. Well, Bill, first of all, thank you for reassuring all of us that CBS is not in danger of falling into the hands of an evil private equity firm, but rather a uh, an alternative asset management company. Exactly. <laughs> But let's talk about some of the the financial tripwires, and and you you know you mentioned there could be a distressed situation. We'll get to that. But you talked to one unnamed Wall Street veteran recently who said to you, the problem is first of all the depth of the market, i.e., there is not that many potential buyers out there, and then two, there's all this debt hanging over National Amusements, also over Paramount, which could be triggered. Um, into a sort of automatic repayment situation if the asset changes hands. I don't need to get into all the technical details of the stuff, but you know, Apollo, I mean, obviously you mentioned they've got a big private credit business. Could that make the refinancing here easier? You you know, you would think if if anybody could pull off, you know, if there's this change of control uh, put that occurs on the eleven point two billion of senior notes at Paramount, which you know, would could potentially get triggered, you know, unless Apple or Amazon buys the company. Uh, but you know, any private equity buyer or any buyer that looks like a private equity or financial buyer is going to trigger this put. And you think if any firm could handle this put, could handle, uh, you know, having to refinance or or, or to place eleven point two billion of debt. Uh, it could be Apollo, but my people tell me that even Apollo, for all its depth and all of its relationships and its huge credit, private credit business, Apollo would have a big problem uh, in this market. Uh, you know, refinancing that uh, amount of debt, uh, given given the uh, you know amount of the debt, and given the credit that you know, let's face it, uh, the credit that is. Uh, the triple B Paramount Global credit. You know, uh, we've got you know, with two billion dollars of losses related to Paramount Plus and a linear TV business, uh, you know, disappearing before our eyes. Uh, as glamorous as it is, uh, I think that you know, even the mighty Apollo would have a problem, you know, handling that much debt, uh, handling that put as part of any deal. So it's been described to me as a poison pill for any financial buyer. Well, the other possibility is, you know, obviously the other player that's out there we've been talking about is David Ellison with his um, Skydance. Uh, he's partnered with uh, Jerry Cardinal at, at Redbird. Um, but David's father, Larry Ellison, is worth, you know, 150 plus billion dollars. So at least in that case, there, there's also a possibility that you have someone who could just pay off all that debt in full right away if they wanted to. I mean, sure, the, the rich, you know, didn't get rich by being reckless with their money. But um, Ellison, via his father, he's got the cash if he wants to just backstop that bid, right? Absolutely. You know, Larry Ellison could could guarantee that um, uh, a, a debt, uh, you know, a, and or, you know, guarantee the credit. So the senior note put 
comes into play, you know, if there's a change of control and then the credit agencies downgrade uh, the debt uh, off the triple B uh, cliff into junk territory. And, you know, there's any number of things Larry Ellison could do to prevent that. Uh, he could guarantee that debt, which would imme- immediately make it this, so there wouldn't be a downgrade. Uh, you know, he, he could underwrite it. He could backstop it. He could pay it off. He could, you know, you know, put $11 billion of cash into Skydance. I mean, any number of things he could do. Um, and so if in fact, Larry Ellison is involved with David Ellison's bid, you know, I have no idea what their relationship is or whether Larry Ellison would do that for his son. I'd do it for my sons if I could. So, uh, maybe he would be willing to do it for his son. That would change the whole dynamic on that particular issue and, and make the Skydance, Cardinal, KKR bid uh, for NAI, a whole different kettle of fish and uh, eliminate that problem entirely. Bill, I don't know if you saw in Matt's newsletter the other night, he published a piece of feedback from an anonymous strategy executive who was, who was writing in to sort of respond to your conversation with Matt on the town the other week. And I thought he made an interesting point which is that, yeah, of course, the the cheap way to acquire national amusements or Paramount is to come at it like a distressed investor to wait for a default or something. And you were just mentioning that could be a possibility that Paramount is in worse shape than we think, that NAI is in worse shape than we think. But um, but again, you know, a Hollywood big shot like David Ellison doesn't have a lot of real experience in that arena. And, and the point this guy made was, you know, when you have that much money, it's just easier to overpay and avoid the fight or avoid the risk of an uncertain outcome. And that's that's one thing you get. You're, yes, you're going to pay a, a premium, but then you just get the asset. You don't have to worry about fighting other people in a sort of open auction process. You don't have to worry about, uh, you know, the, the debt covenants or whatever else. Uh, you can just get it done. And, and maybe that's worth it to David. Maybe that's worth it to Larry. Well, well again, um, first of all, Ben, if again, if Larry Ellison comes into this, then sort of all bets are off because, you know, if you have to uh, pay Sherry, you know, to $2 billion for something worth $1 billion and you have to guarantee $11 billion of debt, uh, you know, uh, this is this all could be like, you know, coins in the cushion for, for Larry Ellison. Uh, but, you know, I, I go back, you know, I'm a, a student of Wall Street and a, a Wall Street historian. You know, uh, the great Gus Levy, who was um, the senior partner at Goldman Sachs, once said something that I, you know, repeat all the time, which is that, you know, um, something uh, well bought is half sold. So if you overpay um, for something, that is not uh, evidence of financial discipline. And you could be setting yourself up for uh, losing the asset down the road if you overpay for it up front just to get it and control it and to, you know, box out the, the market. Our friend Ari Emanuel overpaid for IMG by $500 million compared to any other bidder. Uh, you know, I don't know whether that's, uh, you know, has hurt uh, Ari, uh, you know, all these years later, but, uh, you know, overpaying to get an asset uh, just because you can is uh, not evidence of financial discipline or uh, intelligence or um, cleverness. And so uh, I don't. You know, you can do it for sure. You you can do it. I mean, uh, Elon Musk 
uh, overpaid uh, for uh, Twitter by about forty-four billion dollars. Uh, has it has it <laughs> right. has it hurt sure, him? Sure. Um, no, I haven't. You know, it doesn't really seem to have affected him one way or another. He's gotten richer, uh, even though he did that. So you can do it, yes. Uh, but I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't advise it. I wouldn't advise him to do it. But you know, he may have other motives, and Larry may be willing to help. So Apollo's not going to do that. That's for sure. And uh, I don't, you know. Uh, and I don't think David Zaslav is going to do that either because he can't afford to do that. So I don't see a whole lot of competition for this asset either. So why do you have to worry about, you know, why go in with the idea that you need to, you know, overpay to take it off the table? Well, at least Sherry has at least more than one potential bidder out there, whether uh, whether they're actually genuinely interested or just kicking the tires. Uh, presumably they're bidding up the price for uh, for someone else but um but we'll see uh bill we got to leave it there but thanks as always for joining us um we'll see how this uh apollo paramount situation shakes out thank you ben thanks so much for listening to another episode of the powers that be as a reminder the powers that be is the official podcast of puck we'd like to thank ben landy liz goff and alex bigler for their editorial and production guidance If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.